0: Coming up on Stew Does America. Mercifully, the Democratic debate is over, and we're just three days away from Biden's last stand in South Carolina. Only six days away from Super Tuesday. This is so much fun. Matt Kibbe joins us to help us sort through all the elderly people on stage. And Ben Weingarten comes by to take a close look at what is going on inside the head of Ilhan Omar, if anything. I want to thank you for watching and listening. We're seriously blown away by how many of you have been doing that, and we thank you. Also, there are much better shows on Netflix. You should totally check those out. Before you do, to uh, click the bell here on YouTube on uh, notifications, uh, because you're going to get the new posts so every time we get a new episode up there. I will to tell you about that. You're going to want to do that. And rate and review this podcast. We can agree about one thing regarding the show: it's great. Whatever. Please subscribe to the podcast on YouTube or at blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, you save 10 bucks. And remember, according to the CDC, subscribing to Stew Does America is the best way to stop the spread of the coronavirus.
1: Stew Does America.
0: Did you watch the debate last night? Were you hoping for an early visit from the coronavirus so you didn't have to? I know that I was. Frontrunner and slow walker Bernie Sanders was the target of most of the attention, and despite knowing it was coming, he could just not bring himself to forcefully speak clair- with clarity or any certainty at all against communist dictatorships.
1: I have condemned authoritarianism, whether it is the people in Saudi Arabia that the United States government has Cuban, loved Nicaragua? For years. Cuba, Nicaragua, authoritarianism of any stripe is bad. But that is different than saying that governments occasionally do things that are good.
0: Look, I wasn't a huge fan of the drugging and raping, but who who can forget those Cosby Pudding Pop commercials? Oh, everybody remembers those. There happens to be one that remains on the planet. A good journalist needs to ask him a couple of questions. Since he's been able to find lots of positives about murderous dictators, which are worth mentioning, why not rattle off a list of uh, things you like about Donald Trump? Or is he worse than Stalin and Castro? I'm not sure I want to hear your answer to that one. And you know, it's not just Trump. Uh, Hey, Bernie, can you find one positive thing to say about the leader of one of our closest allies? But
2: here
1: is the point. I am very proud of being Jewish. I actually lived in Israel for some months. But what I happen to believe is that right now, sadly, tragically, in Israel, through Bibi Netanyahu, you have a reactionary racist who is now running
0: that country. I'm honestly waiting for a full-out rant about how Trump and Netanyahu are evil, but we should point out that Hitler really loved his dog. You know, Idi Amin sure looked great in a uniform now, didn't he? And I challenge you to find a mustache more full and vibrant than my main man, Uncle Joe Stalin. And yes, of course, I could be critical of them. All of their tax rates were far too low. Elizabeth Warren absolutely needs to go after Sanders, but instead, she seems to be obsessed with Michael Bloomberg, which is interesting considering they have basically zero crossover vote. We're supposed to see Elizabeth Warren as a feminist icon. Nevertheless, she persisted. might be her little patented girl power bumper sticker, but it's more accurately translated as she's continually annoying. And for a feminist, she sure is focused on using other women's stories to further her own ambitions. She's basically Gloria Allred, and she's conveniently all red. Hmm. Not to say, of course, that Bloomberg is any better. Every interaction with this guy looks like he's annoyed that there's another human inside the same zip code as him. Has he ever had a conversation with another person? Every time Bloomberg starts talking with someone on stage, I'm worried he's going to try to tip them at the end. Bloomberg's whole pitch for the White House is that he's an amazing manager. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he's apparently letting Elizabeth Warren run his business. What the senator did suggest was that we
2: release these women from the nondisclosure agreement. I did that two days later, and my company has said we will not use nondisclosure agreements ever again. The senator has got it, and I don't know what else she wants us to do. Oh, I'll be clear. We're following
0: exactly what she asked to do. I'm Michael Bloomberg, and I'm a great manager who can get it done. And by it, I mean exactly what my annoying opponent randomly suggested on a stage a week ago with no information about the situation. Vote for me. By the way, stopping your company from having any nondisclosure agreements is not a step forward for women. It's taking one of their options off the table. This is a tough one to follow, so listen closely, Elizabeth. No more NDAs is only a good thing. If the woman doesn't want an NDA, people involved in these situations sign NDAs and are compensated for them because they've decided it's the best option for them, not for you, Elizabeth, for them. If every rich guy thinks all of his NDAs are going to be violated the second, you know, it's beneficial for the other party, they're not going to offer them anymore. What would, I mean, what if you happen to be a woman that doesn't want to be? constantly reliving their worst moments of their life in public what if you don't want to be attacked in cross-examination examination examination by company attorneys now you don't even have that option anymore (laughs) no options at all what a win for women thanks lizzie warren and bloomberg have way more in common than they think they're both basically woodrow wilson the ultimate progressives in this race Hey, ladies, these two rich politicians know more about your life than you do. So they must take your choices away because if they don't, you might pick the wrong one. Sorry, but it's for a good cause. Elizabeth Warren's personal power. So thank you for understanding. The other person who identifies as a female on stage was Amy Klobuchar. She, of course, is only staying in the race because her home state, Minnesota, is a Super Tuesday state. And that is her only chance of winning anything. She's basically the John Kasich of 2020, which makes commenting on her completely pointless, just like the real John Kasich. Jolton Joe Biden, of course, is in a must win situation on Saturday. He had a fantastic debate performance. I mean, let's be honest about it. He finished the night 80 percent louder and a full 20 percent more coherent. Good job, Joe. You know, people get on his case all the time because he can't say words in the right order. But I think it's amazing how close he gets Considering all the distractions of the voices rattling around in his head, it's very difficult. Blah, 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 trying to get those words out. At the end of the night, he made a pledge. If elected, Joe Biden promises to pick his Supreme Court justices based on both pigmentation of their skin and the look of their genitals.
2: When you get knocked down, get up and everyone's entitled to be treated with dignity, no matter what, no matter who they are. My also that everyone should be represented. Everyone no one's better than me and I'm no better than anyone else. The fact is what we should be doing. We talked about the Supreme Court. I'm looking forward to making sure there's a black woman on the Supreme Court to make sure we in fact get every representation. Not a joke. Not a joke. I pushed very hard for that.
0: (laughs) One of my favorite things Biden does is deny things that people aren't accusing him of. They're all cheering. Why is he saying it's not a joke? What what is was there a person on earth who thought he was pandering that hard for laughs? We take your pathetic desperation very seriously here, Joe. Don't worry about it. Now let's flash back to the state in 2016. There were five Republican candidates left. Two were white, two were Hispanic, and one was African American. It was legitimately a majority minority primary. Last night the oh so diverse Democrats had seven people on stage. With a diversity's total that coincidentally matches the middle letter of POC. The only real diversity left in the race is Tom Steyer because at least he wears a plaid tie. And, little known fact, he's made of cement. I don't know about you, but when I look at this field, I kind of, am a little split on it. I mean, part of me thinks it's blatantly obvious that Pete Buttigieg is the best candidate out there, right? I mean, he's, he's the only one under 100 years old that isn't a socialist and can speak in full sentences. I keep thinking he feels like John Lovitz uh, as Michael Dukakis in the famous SNL sketch.
2: Governor Dukakis, rebuttal.
0: I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I can understand uh, why he feels that way. But on the other hand, I can understand the hesitation from the voters. I mean, think of this guy's journey. It was only one year ago this week he was first let into the deep end during Open Swim. And that's only a slight exaggeration, honestly. Buttigieg is 38 years old, which is only three years above the absolute minimum age the Constitution allows for you to be president. This is a super creepy way of phrasing this, but Buttigieg is barely legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's around the, look, he's on the right side of the line, don't get me wrong, but for some things, like picking presidents and Hustler magazine, maybe not getting too close to the line is a good idea. For example, the FDA allows... Up to 30 insect fragments per 100 grams of peanut butter. So 27 is technically okay, but I like to keep my insect insect fragments, like, way down, like, you know, high teens, tops. Now, Buttigieg did have some massive accomplishments while in office uh, as the mayor of South Bend, um, and it was pretty impressive. For example, he presented a proclamation in recognition of National Farmers Market Week, which showed that he knew about National Farmers Market Week. And that is more than I can say about myself or all other human beings in America. Now, uh, permanent street renaming was a little above his pay grade, but he did successfully complete a temporary name change of an intersection to Memorial Day Drive for their gigantic parade. In fact, quote, there are 96 parade entries and all four public high school bands will participate. Not three of the four, all four high school bands. Suck on that, haters. Mayor Pete also celebrated Michelle Obama's Let's Move program by taking students on, quote, a tasting tour, trying green beans, sweet peppers, mustard greens, tomatoes and mint. This festivity, of course, was followed by the 14 funerals of the kids who killed themselves because they because they had to go on a green bean tasting tour. He also met with the state champion mock trial team. Does this qualify him to pick Supreme Court justices? Damn right. It does. He was able to lead a walking school bus. What is a walking school bus, you ask? Well, allow me to answer. A walking school bus is a group of children accompanied by adults who walk together on a planned route from a designated meeting place. That's not a walking school bus. That's just walking. It was also followed by another 23 child suicides. And don't forget, of course, about the time he dedicated a bunch of sharrows Sharrows. They are the combination of sharing and arrows. He actually used the word sharrows. I quote for you, the installation of sharrows mark another step forward in South Bend's identity as a bicycle-friendly city. Now, this was a bit controversial because he was protested by gay rights activists who thought the word sharrows was too gay. Look, I... I don't know how to even deal with this anymore. Think of your life as a Democrat at this very moment. You're left with a choice of this terrible field of candidates to try to remove what you see as the worst president in American history. With a choice like that, you'd root for coronavirus, too. One of the highest profile surrogates for Bernie Sanders is Ilan Omar. The media presents her as sort of an intersectional superhero. The right sees her ideas as dangerous and her background as intriguing, uh, to say the least. So, what is the truth? Uh, ben Weingarten is the author of the brand new book, American Ingrate, Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. And Ben has also won an ESPY for Worst Fantasy Football Manager for leaving an injured kicker and injured wide receiver in his lineup in a key final week matchup. I'm hoping the attention to detail in the book is a lot better than the fantasy football lineup, Ben. Is that, is that true?
3: This was a terrible football season, but I did win a fantasy baseball league, so, you know, I'll take 50%.
0: Okay, <laughs> that's, that's not too, not too bad. Uh, let's get yeah. right into the book because you have so much great stuff in here. Uh, I think s- starting with the background of Ilan Omar, I mean, I think she is one of the most fascinating people in politics right now. Because um, she, she doesn't come off to me as silly like an AOC comes off. She's a serious figure um, and in, uh, you know, trying to uh, like unwind even her background is really difficult. What is actually true?
3: Yeah, so uh, what we know in her background is potentially compromising enough such that if she were applying for a regular security clearance, even a basic one, and you go through the government forms that you need to sign, the red flags alone would be such that she would never get that clearance. Mm. I'm pretty confident in saying that. And as David Steinberg who uh, is investigative journalist and has covered this at length on the blaze and elsewhere. uh, It's very clear that there is substantial evidence be it in terms of social media, marriage records, address records and more that she did in fact marry her brother, or at least someone foreign national who came over here, got an education, and then quickly thereafter left. They split up. She almost immediately got back with the person with whom she had been married, at least Islamically, and had had two children with, who she's called the love of her life. And they resumed their relationship almost immediately after that relationship failed. But I think the really critical thing to keep in mind is. It's very clear that there was likely some sort of fraud committed, whether or not this person was her brother. And I think the evidence is compelling that he was. But the more scary thing about this is we're talking about someone who sits on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, dealing with the most serious, sensitive, classified information on national security and foreign policy. And again, just on the basis of this one little aspect of, maybe very big fraud in her background, implicating a whole raft of crimes. She would never get a security clearance, let alone sit on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And that she has that seat alone tells you how powerful a figure she is in her party, because Speaker Pelosi put her there and has kept her there through all manner of scandals throughout her short time in the House.
0: So how does her uh, background in this very, very different background, it's just a different background, everybody's different. We have to accept everything that's different. How does this different background feed into her belief system?
3: Yeah, and this hasn't really been explored in any great depth. And in American ingrate, I go in to pretty deep detail about her background. And the funny thing about it is, you know, the the term ingrate is very powerful. And I think that it is her ingratitude or ungratefulness towards this country that has given her everything. That is what really irks people viscerally about her. I mean, you get an emotional response to Omar because she just badmouths this country every single day and says, essentially, that we need to have all of these policies in place to punish us and provide social justice for the rest of the world. Now, why does she come at it from this perspective? It's actually interesting because she lived in a pre-Civil War Somalia. She was born into a pre-Civil War Somalia into a background of privilege in progressive Mm parlance. She grew up in a compound with servants and this is all self described. They had ample food, they had books, artwork. She describes this amazing life that she lived where they had enough food that they could feed all the beggars around her, her compound. But okay, what kind of Somalia was she actually living in? It was a Marxist Islamist dictatorship run by a military general who had taken over in a coup and her family clearly prospered under that sort of regime. So that might make you go, huh? I mean, how did they end up in that sort of position? And if you look at it, she describes her father, her grandfather and others as being government officials, uh, educators, teacher trainers, her father being a teacher trainer and he's had a big influence on her politically. She has said, what does a teacher trainer do in a Marxist Islamist dictatorship? Well, this was a Soviet backed regime. And if you were a teacher, you studied Marxism and if you're a teacher trainer you're teaching other people about Soviet Marxism. So it's very clear they were loyal to the regime because they prospered under it and what they were doing under that regime again was serving it loyally and you can't separate this sort of privileged background in a Marxist Islamist dystopia for us but paradise for her and then consider that she came over to the U.S. and basically had nothing yet rose to the heights of the U.S. House and is completely ungrateful for it. And I think in part you could argue and I'm not going to play armchair psychiatrist here, but she came from everything and then she she left for nothing. Uh, But she's risen here and she should be a lot more grateful than she is for it. Instead, she spits in our faces about it.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think I've heard that that this is essentially her philosophy is an import, right? Like she was already living under this philosophy over there. She brings it over here. Um, And, you know, I think there's a lot of incongruity, right, with with socialism and this uh, devout Muslim uh, religion that she believes so strongly in. Um, First of all, here, obviously, we see many positions socially that are completely uh, incompatible with, at least from the surface, with uh, with a devout Muslim belief. How does she square these two together?
3: Yeah, well, I I talk about this in sort of a philosophical sense in the book of how does the left and Islamists, how do they get along? And there's a long history of their working together because they have sort of a common stumbling block and that common stumbling block is uh, liberal, classical L, big liberal, Mm. Judeo-Christian Western civilization. We are the thing that stands in their path to power. And they're both sort of totalitarian belief systems. They can't allow for any dissenting opinion. They punish you if you express a dissenting opinion. And while they do disagree on social issues, for example, they're willing to set aside those differences because they have a common adversary, which is basically us patriotic, relatively traditional Americans who believe in what the founders said or something like it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she has sort of seamlessly combined kind of the most radical progressive views social and otherwise with those views that she may have imported but I think what's even more amazing and what I argue in the book is that she could have just as easily gotten most of her views from the enclave in Minneapolis that she grew up in as in the street in Mogadishu. And that alone is a pretty powerful commentary on where we are in the United States and even more amazingly is the fact that her big supporters in the Minneapolis area where she represents. Include a large Somali refugee population, but really her biggest backers are sort of woke white elites. And that's a pretty telling and important commentary when we talk about where the Democratic Party is uh, in this election and going forward as well. And mm-hmm. I talk about all of that in the book at great length.
0: Yeah, you write in, in American and Great. Uh, Perhaps the most sobering sobering is the fact that Representative Omar is a symptom of our failings as a country, of our immigration policies, of our education system, and more broadly, our predominant progressive values and principles that have conspired to make a person like this congresswoman viable. What does it say when our elites of the present and future bless such candidates? What does it say?
3: Yeah, well, I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Uh, I I think I think what that tells you is that and I've said this previously. That the Democratic party at least it's progressive wing and it's progressive wing is the ascendant wing it's where the power and the energy is has embraced an ideology of national self loathing of hate America, blame America first. And why is that the case? Again, not to play armchair psychiatrist, but if you think that this country was founded in sin, that you think we have been antithetical to justice, uh, against social justice, then you have to overturn the entire system because if it's rotten from its core, and the 1619 Project that the New York Times has put forth is a good example of this, or Howard Zinn's history books, Mm -hmm. if you wanna take it back a little bit further, The only moral just thing to do if we are this horrible, wretched, irredeemable, deplorable country is to overturn it. And you have a party right now where the most virtuous thing is to attack us, to point out our failings. When, by the way, we've provided more freedom, more prosperity, more opportunity. Uh, defended people all over the world than any other nation in the history of mankind. And that's something that we should all be really grateful for, starting with Ilhan Omar, who we went into Somalia, by the way, to defend her people. Yeah. And she spits in the faces of our military when she attacks the people involved in Black Hawk Down and slanders them, claims that they killed civilians when we were actually protecting civilians in her country.
0: Mm. It's a deep, it's a topic that really needs a deep dive, and you've done it here. American Ingrate, uh, Ilhan Omar, and the progressive Islamist takeover of the Democratic party i was a little concerned though when i went to the back of the book here and i saw these pages and they were uh they're empty i mean is this something that you did intentionally or is this like your fantasy football team you just forgot to check uh that the pages were filled you
3: you know when you started this interview it was sort of like the mike tyson line about everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face you know (laughs) and i'm still not fully recovered from that so uh in my next book Mm -hmm. I will have uh, comprehensive standings from the last five years, and hopefully uh, my average winning percentage will be a little bit higher by that time. I
0: I think that's fair. Ben Weingarten, thanks so much for coming on the program.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Stu. Appreciate (laughs) it.
0: Back in a second. Hey, hey, what do you say? How is Alexandria Victim You might think that the defining characteristic of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is that she's a socialist or that she's a moron, but no. The defining characteristic, of course, is that she's always the victim of every situation. If you watch this with the squad, you'll see it over and over and over again. You just got to look for it. You know, uh, we'll give you an example, uh, kind of a famous example from AOC's past. She was in a school in the Bronx. Uh, She was AOC from the Bronx, you know, like Jenny from the block. And she went to, uh, she, her school was kind of crappy and her parents you know, were able to lift themselves up and get out to the suburbs, to a nice place called Yorktown, uh, where I used to spend many summers back in the day. So it's a nice place. And you know what happened? They had a better education. And everything else. How did that play to AOC though? You'd think this is a good story. She's achieving something. And you know what? There's a real problem there with those school systems. Maybe we should allow school choice. Maybe we should allow some free market competition with schools to improve them. But no, no. She was the victim of this saying, that's when I first got my taste of a country who allows their kids destiny to be determined by the zip code they are born in. You see how she always sees this the same way? We have a new one uh, that has just come out. Uh, about, it's about education too, from a video in 2017 before AOC was AOC. And she was a little perturbed about her goddaughter's school situation. Again, she was in a bad school. She wanted to get to a better school. How could she do it? You know, we know there's better schools, we know there's private schools and charter schools, but they can't get to those, of course not. Well, shockingly, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez admitted that she actually did help with this. Yet again, of course, she's the victim of this situation. Uh, this area is a lot like where my family is from, ocasio Cortez says as she walked through the Bronx. Bronx, my goddaughter, I got her into a charter school, like maybe a block or two down. So again, she's admitting the kind of conservative idea of school choice, right? Like, wouldn't it be better if you could choose your school and have instead of having to deal with the one that uh, you know you're you're dealing with automatically? You'd think maybe she'd come to the conservative side on that argument, but no, no, not AOC. She's a victim. And of course, unfortunately, in this particular situation, AOC's goddaughter is the victim today. Hey, hey, what do you say? How is Alexandria a victim today? Oh, man, we have too much to get to uh, here before the end of the program. Let's go with uh, Elizabeth Warren from The Debate talking about Michael Bloomberg.
2: I don't care how much money uh, Mayor Bloomberg has, the core of the the Democratic Party will never trust him. He has not earned their trust. I will. And the fact that he cannot earn the trust of the core of the Democratic Party means he is the riskiest candidate standing on this. Stage. All right, Senator Warren, mm. thank you. Mayor Bloomberg, would you
0: like- Somehow he, her pitch is that he's untrustworthy. And that's an interesting pitch coming from Elizabeth Warren, frankly. Uh, here is uh, another clip with uh, Warren and Bloomberg going back and forth about a, a little sideshow.
2: I have been training for this job since I stepped on the pile that was still smoldering on 9-11. Ugh, I, that. I know terrible, what to do. I've shown I know how to run a country. That's I've crazy. run the city, which is almost the same size, as bigger than most countries in the world. I am not the least, I'm the one choice that makes some sense. I have the experience, I have the resources, and I have the record. And all of the sideshows that the Senator wants to bring up have nothing to do with that. When people fi- hired me to run New York City, Three times in an overwhelmingly Democratic
0: progressive city, they elected me again and again. First of all, we need to acknowledge what a cringeworthy line. The I'm stepping on the ground zero and that made me want to be president. I mean, that's just just icky and he should stop doing that. But beyond that, the the sideshow that uh, he's talking about is Elizabeth Warren mentioning all these Republicans that he had endorsed over the years. A legitimate argument in a Democratic primary. Hey, you, you know, you're, you're on George W. Bush's uh, side there. That's kind of a problem for us. The other, the, the problem, though, is that she is trying to hit Michael Bloomberg about him being a former Republican when she is also a former Republican. Again, this is completely dishonest from from Warren. Yes, she was a Republican a little bit earlier in her life than Bloomberg. I, I don't know if it was earlier in her life, but a little bit longer ago. Michael Bloomberg's pretty old. Uh, But I don't see how that is a that's not a point she can break up and uh, bring up. And Michael Bloomberg really blows it there without actually bringing up that argument himself. Um, Here's Elizabeth Warren talking about when she got fired.
2: You know, this is personal for me. When I was 21 years old, I got my first job as a special education teacher. I love that job. And by the end of the first year, I was
0: we've already dealt with this one before. She's lying yet again. She's calling him the most dishonest. And then she's beating on him for being a Republican and then she's beating on him again for uh, for I guess for getting fired because she was pregnant. When we know that that's not the case based on her own words. Let me give you one more. This is one more uh, thing. This is Michael Bloomberg talking about uh, the difference in cities.
1: Mayor Bloomberg is mayor of New York. You declared war on obesity. You banned trans fats from restaurants, and you tried to do the same with large sugary drinks. So if you become
2: president, will you push those policies on the national level as well? Well, I think what's right for New York City isn't necessarily right for all the other cities. Otherwise, you'd have a naked cowboy in every
0: city. Yeah. So let's get serious here. Here, uh, here's the thing. This is a segment all about dishonesty. Warren's lying about being a, not being a Republican. Warren uh, is lying about not being fired for being pregnant, that whole thing, and here, They're lying about the naked cowboy. The cowboy is not a cowboy, and he's not naked. He's just a dude in like speedo, and he's wearing a hat. It's it's not even a naked cowboy. This is just it's a disgrace. All they did was lie all night long, and I hope you saw it. Back in just a second. Matt Kibby is the president and chief community organizer at Free the People. Also a host of, of course, Kibby on Liberty on a little network you might know called Blaze TV. Also owner of uh, Kibby Island, a new sovereign property under construction in preparation for President Sanders. Uh, Matt, welcome to the program.
1: I really need to move soon because <laughs> I'm a little worried right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is really happening, isn't it? I mean, here we are. I, I, I'm, I'm at the point watching election returns come in in the Democratic caucus and primary where I'm thinking, Climbing to a top of a very large building and jumping off the side might be a better option than continuing to watch these debates. Uh, I mean, is Sanders really going to be the nominee? Is this going to happen?
1: You know, I I think there's a very serious chance that this is going to happen, and I worry that that some conservatives and and ardent Trump supporters think that this is a good thing because Bernie is is so beatable. And I my my one message would be. We need to be careful here because I'm not convinced that Bernie is as beatable as people think. And there's, there's some anal- analogies between Trump and 16 overturning the Republican Party mm-hmm. and the way that Bernie Sanders is overturning the Democratic Party. This is a real thing.
0: Yeah. You know, I've gone back and forth on this question because part of me thinks, you know, he... he would have a real tough time connecting with someone in you're in Pennsylvania, you're in the middle of Pennsylvania, you're going to vote for a socialist. Like it doesn't it doesn't comprehend. I can't comprehend it that the United States of America would go down this road. But I mean, when you look at it, the data itself seems to point to Sanders is electable and seems to point to that that, that there really isn't opposition within the Democratic Party to him being the nominee, um, at least of any significance. I, I have we come this far? I mean, we you know, we've been. I mean, how long has it been, Matt? I mean, we've been talking, you know, doing interviews on Glenn Show and, and other places for a long time. I mean, back at the beginning, it felt like there was a real movement towards liberty. And right at this moment, it feels like kind of the opposite.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, we should be kind of freaked out about the fact that that socialism and and being proud to wear that on your sleeve is somehow viable in American politics. But we have to understand that that most people process uh policy information and political information, probably different than most viewers of, of Blaze TV, it's it's more of an emotional connection. And, and I always go back to an article that I read in the New York Times, and I, I just pulled it up before this conversation, that compared Donald Trump's reaction or the reaction to Donald Trump in Burlington, Vermont which is, of course, Bernie Central mm-hmm. versus Bernie's reaction. And, and, and Trump held a big rally on January 7th of uh, 2016. And The New York Times went down the line of people waiting to get in line and, and expecting, of course, everyone to say, um, you know, Trump is a disaster and we, need to, we right. need to elect the Democrat. But one person after another said, you know, I like Bernie, but I could vote for Trump. Or the next person said, I like Trump, I could vote for Bernie. And the reason they do that is because it's an anti-establishment. This guy is not part of the democratic machine and their, their understanding of policy is an inch deep, but they just know that this guy is not part of the machine. And I think that's a big part of Bernie's appeal.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is interesting to see the crossover between those two groups, you know, policy wise, you wouldn't think that there's much of one, but there's not, it's just, it's it's motion. It's anti-establishment. Um, and I think even not just anti-establishment, you know, in Washington, D.C. generally, but it's it's it would internally inside the parties. They see Sanders making this move, and they like the fact that a Hillary Clinton isn't going to win.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there is a real thing. And, I, you know, I go back, as you know, to, to Tea Party days yeah. and the way that the Tea Party— and Tea Party candidates were treated at the 2012 Republican Convention, and certainly the Ron Paul supporters, and there was some crossover between those two groups. I mean, the machine did not want us there. And I saw the same thing. I actually went to the Democratic Convention in 2016, talked to a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, and they felt like outsiders. They had no connection to the Democratic Party and they were they were treated as aliens and they were sort of screwed over not just at the convention with but with the DNC rules and so there is sort of a takeover going on and and in one way we could be as i said before kind of freaked out about this but i i still like to believe that we're in the middle of a very disruptive process where where voters have more voice and the two party duopoly that has created 23 trillion dollars in debt is is in trouble but we could also end up with a socialist as the freaking president of the United States.
0: <laughs> that, you're right. I, you know, it's so funny because I'm with you on that. I, I like the fact that things are being turned upside down a little bit. And I think we needed a little bit of a shakeup, as, as you point out, with the debt and, and so many other factors. Um, and I like the idea of other options coming on board and, and changing things up. Um, but I, I've come to the conclusion, I don't know, I, you know, when, when you watch sports, you, you know, you, your team just, you know, wins the NFC championship. You're going to watch the AFC championship. You want to see who's going to win. And you're probably rooting for one of those two teams for your team to play. Um, and as I've kind of looked at this, you know, I, I'm at the point I just want to minimize the downside. I, you know, Sanders might yeah. be slightly easier. <laughs> Maybe he is. I don't know. I'm, I go back and forth on that one, too. Um, but he might be easier. But I, his downside to me is unique in this field. He, he is a he's an ideologue. A lot of people try to compare him to, to Trump. Um, and they do have the same sort of anti-establishment um, criteria in some ways. In some ways, I think a better analogy is, is the you know, exact opposite of Ron Paul, because Ron Paul was a real I mean, he believed in something. You know what I mean? Where Trump is really more of a figure. He's a populist figure and he's a, he's very famous and he does. He certainly has certain things he believes in, but he was never an ideologue where, you know, and I look at ideologue a lot of times as, as a positive word. Satyrs is an ideologue. The guys believed this for a very long time. If he gets in, he doesn't care about his future uh, reputation. He wants to get this done. He is in it to win it. And that terrifies me. If He wins this, this presidency. He's going to do all sorts of stuff that's going to uh, give long term damage to the United States.
1: No, it's it's, uh, it's frightening. And I, I do believe that he believes everything that he's always believed. And you can go back now and watch all of these fairly horrific videos of him defending the Sandinistas and defending Castro and and defending the Soviet Union. Um, he now sort of backs away from defending the Soviet Union because it failed and we know a, a, all of the atrocities. Um, but he has that um, willingness to push aside the authoritarian atrocities and say, "But they had a literacy program, or but they had <laughs> free health care that no one ever got, but it was free." Um, so, so we should be concerned about this. But let's keep in mind one that Bernie can win, and we should take it seriously. And the other thing we need to think about is that uh, the the people that support Bernie are not necessarily buying socialism. They're buying that authenticity. They're buying that anti-establishment mm-hmm. populism, and we need to make sure that that we don't just talk down to young people who are attracted to Bernie Sanders. I, I think these are these are very gettable young people who are looking for something different. They're looking for an alternative, and in a lot of ways, they they have a libertarian spirit. And I think we make we make a mistake just making fun of them.
0: Yeah, I, it's tempting though. I mean, sometimes it's tempting. But you're probably right. It's not the right move. You know, we were doing our um, uh, State of the Union coverage up in, in D.C. A, you know, a few weeks ago. And one of the panelists was on there was this 30 year old female and was saying that, like, look, Bernie Sanders is dangerous to actually win this race. Why? Because he has the energy and all the young people are going to go for him because th- their memory, their big moment politically in their life is the 2008 financial crisis? It's not. It's not uh, you right. know 9/11. It's not World War II. It's not the Cold War. It's none of that. It's 2008, where they see, and it was certainly you know portrayed as just a massive capitalist failure that basically ruined our family, and now I can't get a job. And with that in mind, yeah. you know, there's a de- there's a there's certainly a danger for a long-term effect where this. Uh, po- the popularity of socialism isn't just some fleeting, you know, AOC Twitter phenomenon, but is is something you know people start getting aligned with.
1: Well, that's the so we we deal with this capitalism versus socialism debate every day, and I and it, particularly in the minds of young people, capitalism is actually crony capitalism. Capitalism mm-hmm. is the Wall Street bailout, and and I remember Occupy Occupy Wall Streeters. Um, looking at their own college debt, and you could you could actually put uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez right into this category. She's like, "So Wall Street gets bailed out, but I got fifty thousand dollars in in college debt. Where's my bailout?" And and they would say that. And and so I think I think part of the, the the responsibility that the system has, the Republicans and the Democrats, John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi bailing out Wall Street, which is how it went down. This. Is the legacy that we that we have to deal with, and we have to differentiate between the free market process and the ability for entrepreneurs to to succeed and fail and create beautiful new things, versus uh, Wall Street insiders going to Washington and and getting a special deal, and 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 we 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 deal with that caricature, but we also have to to take a step back and and sort of. Uh, remind people and educate people about the history of socialism in practice because whether it's fair or not, uh, young people didn't learn that stuff in public school. We we didn't learn about the atrocities of Mao. We didn't learn about the fact that that Fidel Castro banned rock and roll music Mm. because it was the the evil music of the West. And we certainly didn't learn about uh, um, uh, all of the violence against minorities and gay people and, and Catholic priests and all of the things that Che Guevara and that, and that Cuban revolution. And Bernie ignores all that. He papers it over. And, and it doesn't have to be a direct critique of Bernie, but if young people understood that history, they might know better than to try it again.
0: Mm. You bring up a great point of, of, of what the reaction was to the, um, to the bailout where, you're right, it was, they got bailed out. Why am I not get, getting bailed out? It wasn't, however... They shouldn't have just been bailed out, and neither should I. There's, there, there's that human instinct to go for for more. and I, and it's hard to understand, I think when you talk especially to young young people as you do all the time when you know speaking of, of, of issues of liberty, you look at like you know the every city had a monopoly on the cab for how long and they had this opportunity to yeah. do all sorts of amazing things. Uh, And they had a complete monopoly on it. And what do we get? We got, you know, smelling cars and, you know, I mean, it was never a positive experience. Now I talk to people, you know, we have producers who are, you know, in their 20s. And and if I come out of an airport and take a cab, they look at me as if I'm insane because they realize Uber and Lyft and all these things are much better. But that's capitalism. And, you know, it's in some ways that generation is using capitalism in ways that, you know, that are the most impressive ways that have ever been used. And the other way, in the other hand, they don't seem to recognize that's what they're doing.
1: Yeah. Well, so you have this, obviously, this war on the gig economy happening in California and New York and other places. And that is an opportunity for us because young people live in this radically decentralized world So they wouldn't know a world without uber they wouldn't know a world without spotify where they get to choose whatever music they like they mm. crowdsource their community and all of that and all of this stuff is is sort of radically capitalist radically libertarian whatever you want to call it um, they grew up in that world and if you look at the the, the radical progressive left no, they hate it they hate the gig economy because it creates independence yeah. it creates independence with workers and it creates independence with with an entire generation of voters that they they view very much as their voters so that's something that we need to talk about and and draw the difference so if capitalism is not the Wall Street bailout which you and I know is it's the antithesis of capitalism mm-hmm. But if the Uber economy and the Spotify economy, if that's capitalism, I think I think that's something we can connect with people on.
0: I think so, too. KB on Liberty, of course, Blaze TV. Watch it Uh, and uh, free the people as well. Uh, Matt, Matt KB, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. All right. Back in a second. I'm off to CPAC uh, to hang out with everybody up there. And by the way, while I'm up there, if you see me walking around CPAC, if you happen to be there, make sure you check out a Nancy Pelosi sucks pen. I'm going to be carrying them around and I'm going to be giving them away. Walk up to me and just say, hey, Nancy Pelosi sucks. And then I'll give you one. I mean, while supplies last at CPAC, make sure to rate and subscribe and do all those things. We appreciate you so much.
3: We'll see you tomorrow.